0: let's jump in to Revelation chapter 17. This is our final larger portion of reading that we're going to get into this morning. Now, last week, by way of introduction, we looked at the wine press of God's wrath. We looked at the final you know, series of seven, You know, the seven bowls of wrath that are poured out on Babylon, on this idolatrous system, the beast, which represents empires throughout all the ages that wage war against God and His people from Rome onward. This week, we begin a four-week section of our study that we've entitled, The End and the Beginning. Okay, I I had at first the letters to the churches, then we had that middle section cosmic battles. Now we're finishing out these last four weeks with this section we're calling the end and the beginning because that's exactly what it dictates to all of us as we close out this series. In this first week we get to take a deeper look at the judgments of the sixth and seventh bowl through an angel who gives greater insight to John regarding the final destruction of Babylon, related to us in this passage as the great harlot. Now, I ran into somebody uh, this morning who's like, what in the world's a harlot? The great prostitute is another way of saying it. Yes, it's a delightful passage this morning. Let's jump in. Revelation chapter 17, two and a half chapters. Next week, I think I only have like 10 verses. So we're going to be slowing down significantly. But this week, another lengthy passage. You'll see the verses on the screen. One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the punishment of the great prostitute who sits by the many waters. With her, the kings of the earth committed adultery, and the inhabitants of the earth were intoxicated with the wine of her adulteries. Then the angel carried me away into the spirit, in the spirit into a wilderness. There I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was covered with blasphemous names and had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was dressed in purple and scarlet and was glittering with gold, precious stones and pearls. She held a golden cup in her hand filled with abominable things and the filth of her adulteries. The name written on her forehead was a mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of prostitutes and of the abominations of the earth. I saw that the woman was drunk with the blood of God's holy people, the blood of those who bore testimony to Jesus. When I saw her, I was greatly astonished. Then the angel said to me, why are you astonished? I'll explain to you the mystery of the woman and of the beast she rides, which has the seven heads and ten horns. The beast which you saw once was, now is not, and yet will come up out of the abyss and go to its destruction." The inhabitants of the earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the creation of the world will be astonished when they see the beast because it once was, now is not, and yet will come. This calls for a mind with wisdom. The seven heads are seven hills on which the woman sits. They are also seven kings. Five have fallen, one is, the other has not yet come. But when he does, he must remain for only a little while. The beast who once was and now is not is an eighth king. He belongs to the seven and is going to his destruction. The ten horns you saw are ten kings who have not yet received the kingdom, but who for one hour will receive authority as kings along with the beast. They have one purpose and will give their power and authority to the beast. They will wage war against the lamb, but the lamb will triumph over them because he is Lord of lords and king of kings, and with him will be his called, chosen, and faithful followers." Then the angel said to me, The waters you saw where the prostitute sits are people's multitudes, nations, and languages. The beasts and the ten horns you saw will hate the prostitute. They will bring her to ruin and leave her naked. They will eat her flesh and burn her with fire. For God has put it into their hearts to accomplish his purpose by agreeing to hand over to the beast their royal authority until God's words are fulfilled. The woman you saw is the great city that rules over the kings of the earth. After this, I saw another angel coming down from heaven. He had great authority, and the earth was illuminated by his splendor. With a mighty voice, he shouted, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the Great. She's become a dwelling place for demons, and a haunt for every impure spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, and a haunt for every unclean and detestable animal. For all the nations have drunk the maddening wine of her adulteries. The kings of the earth committed adultery with her, and the merchants of the earth grew rich from her excessive luxuries. Then I heard another voice from heaven say, Come out of her, my people, so that you will not share in her sins, so that you will not receive any of her plagues. For her sins are piled up to heaven, and God has remembered her crimes. Give back to her as she has given. Pay her back double for what she has done. Pour her a double portion from her own cup. Give her as much torment and grief as the glory and luxury she gave herself. In her heart she boasts, I sit enthroned as queen. I am not a widow. I will never mourn. Therefore, in one day, her plagues will overtake her, death, mourning, and famine. She will be consumed by fire, for mighty is the Lord God who judges her. When the kings of the earth who committed adultery with her and shared her luxury see the smoke of her burning, they will weep and mourn over her. Terrified at her torment, they will stand far off and cry, "'Woe, woe to you, great city, you mighty city of Babylon! In one hour your doom has come!' The merchants of the earth will weep and mourn over her because no one buys their cargoes anymore. Cargoes of gold, silver, precious stones, and pearls, fine linen, purple silk, and scarlet cloth, every sort of citron wood, and articles of every kind made of ivory, costly wood, bronze, iron, and marble. Cargoes of cinnamon and spice, of incense, myrrh, and frankincense, of wine and olive oil, of fine flour and wheat, cattle and sheep, horses and carriages, and human beings sold as slaves. They will say, the fruit you longed for is gone from you. All your luxury and splendor have vanished, never to be recovered. The merchants who sold these things and gained their wealth from her will stand far off, terrified at her torment. They will weep and mourn and cry out, woe, woe to you, great city, dressed in fine linen, purple and scarlet, and glittering with gold, precious stones and pearls. In one hour, such great wealth has been brought to ruin." Every sea captain and all who travel by ship, the sailors and all who earn their living by the sea will stand far off. When they see the smoke of her burning, they will exclaim, was there ever a city like this great city? They will throw dust on their heads and with weeping and mourning cry out, "Woe, woe to you, great city, where all who had ships on the sea became rich through her wealth. In one hour, she's been brought to ruin. Rejoice over her, you heavens. Rejoice, you people of God. Rejoice, apostles and prophets, for God has judged her with the judgment she imposed on you. Then a mighty angel picked up a boulder the size of a large millstone and threw it into the sea and said, with such violence, the great city of Babylon will be thrown down, never to be found again. The music of harpists and musicians, pipers and trumpeters will never be heard in you again." No worker of any trade will ever be found in you again. The sound of a millstone will never be heard in you again. The light of a lamp will never shine in you again. The voice of bridegroom and bride will never be heard in you again. Your merchants were the world's important people. By your magic spell, all the nations were led astray. In her was found the blood of prophets and of God's holy people, of all who have been slaughtered on the earth. After this, I heard what sounded like the roar of a great multitude in heaven, shouting, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for true and just are his judgments. He has condemned the great prostitute who corrupted the earth by her adulteries. He's avenged on her the blood of his servants. And again they shouted, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. The 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who was seated on the throne, and they cried, Amen! Hallelujah! Then a voice came from the throne saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, both great and small. Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters, and like loud peals of thunder shouting, Hallelujah! For our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory. For the wedding of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of God's holy people. Then the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the lamb. And he added, these are the true words of God. At this, I fell at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, don't do that. I am a fellow servant with you and with your brothers and sisters who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for it is the spirit of prophecy who bears testimony to Jesus. Let's pause there this morning. You know, By and large, I would say this has been a very engaging study for our community. I can tell you attendance has been uh, off the charts for us as it relates to our recent history the last few years. I don't know that that's because a lot of you are new. Maybe it's just many of you have just been engaged in this study. You've not wanted to miss a week. I invited you not to miss a week, and so you're here. And so I've seen a lot of engagement, enthusiasm. I've also heard a few critical comments from time to time as I go through the series about maybe me making too much of this book Metaphorically, now I think this chapter further vindicates the approach I've taken up to this point. Because if you look at chapter 17, you've got a harlot by many waters seated on a beast with seven heads and ten horns, whose seven heads are actually hills, and the hills are actually kings or kingdoms. And so she's seated on this beast that is heads that are hills that are kings. Five past, one is, one is to come, and the beast is from them, and it is, in fact, an eighth king is one of his own heads. So the beast is made up of heads, but he is also one of the heads that is on himself. And there are ten crowns who are not yet, but will conspire with the beast to kill the harlot who's said to be the great city at the final verse of chapter 17. So who takes issue with me seeing metaphors in the book of Revelation? Not John. I don't think he would. I don't think God does. You know, it's pretty apparent to me that we should expect to receive this message metaphorically unless directed otherwise as these are visions which depict and connect all of human history from everything in the Old Testament through the ministry of Jesus to the end of time and the final judgment. And it's all conveyed to us in a series of pictures captured in 22 short chapters. That is no small task. And I truly love and accept differences in interpretation. I think that makes us stronger. I think there's a lot of great individuals who served in the church who have a different take on the book of Revelation. I never told you I knew everything about this book. In fact, I told you the opposite. I said, I don't. And I also told you no one else does either. But what I'm trying to say as I begin today, I guess just don't take me for a dum-dum, all right? As we go through this, because I think that there's a value to the approach that I've taken. I think there's a value to the way that we're going to be unwrapping some of the meaning of the passage this morning as we have done these past couple weeks. So let's begin at the top with the harlot, with the prostitute, the great prostitute. You know, you've got to see the parody that's at play here. The harlot is the locus, the center of the worldly system. It's the city center of immorality and idolatry at the heart of human civilization. And they're all the veins, right? And they're the arteries of civilization that extend out from this heartbeat, this central place. The harlot acts as a contrast city to the city of God, to the bride of Christ, to the heavenly Jerusalem, to the church who is said to be pure and virgin, through the book of Revelation. To the harlot, to the prostitute, is where the kings and merchants of the world were drawn. In fact, the many waters upon which she sits are said to be the many tribes and nations and peoples. In verse 15, the whole world comes and goes from this epicenter of false religion to get wealthy, to experience pleasure, and to play along with the worship of the world system, which is the beast who is empowered by Satan, the dragon, through the ages. And the harlot is at first glance beautiful and enticing, entrancing even, dressed in purple and scarlet, adorned in these precious gems. That's how God is described earlier in the book of Revelation, in these precious gems, the heavenly city in chapter 21 the new Jerusalem it is it is described as you know having these precious jewels yet again you know this positive sort of first impression it reminds me of something i heard a comedian say recently about you know running into celebrities uh, you know, these beautiful celebrities, he goes, you know, they're just ageless. They're just incredible, you know, when you run into them on the street. But, but there's always a tell about their age when they go to, like, scratch their forehead or something, and you see their ghoulish hand come up and, like, scratch their forehead. Like, his point is the hands never lie, you know, you, you, can, you can dress yourself up, you know, everything in the world. You can be ageless and beautiful and all that. Now, I'm not trying to get you to be insecure about your hands here, everyone. You know, everybody's like, oh, how was your week after service? But no, 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 no. Let's just own it. We're not, we're not you know, building on youthful beauty as the image of beauty in the church. But, but what he's saying is like first impression, ageless beauty, and then there's a tell. There's a giveaway when you look a little closer and the same is true of the harlot. The harlot is enticing at the first impression. But when you look a little closer, you see she is drunk on a cup of abominable things. In fact, it is the blood of those who bore the testimony of Jesus. Now, even given this terrifying dimension to the woman, John is entranced. In the literal like language, the original language, it says he wondered in amazement. He wondered in wonder. At the woman, and the angel sort of has to rebuke John. He has to sort of slap John and go, Wait a minute, Uh, John, this woman is at the center of a system of evil, of conspiracy in the world, of idolatry. Don't get sucked in. The angel goes on to explain this woman rides upon the beast, as I said earlier, with the seven heads and ten horns. I know I was doing a little bit of, you know, an introduction there. It it served to actually remind you of what you read. So as I said before, she's riding on this beast, seven heads, ten horns. It's the same beast that's introduced back in chapter 13, who's employed by Satan to make war against the church. The seven heads are seven hills, or kings, or kings five of which are said to have fallen, one is, and one is to come, but only for a short time. Now, instead of trying to identify these five fallen kingdoms, the one that is, the one that will be, but only for a short time, because there's about 100 conceivable ways that people try to make sense of that, I think we should take the number seven symbolically as it has been used all throughout the book of Revelation up to this point. What's being conveyed here is, I mean, these are all the earthly kingdoms of the world. Five have passed, meaning a lot have come and gone. That's always been true through human history. A lot of these kingdoms have come and gone. There's one that is today. And there's a next one in line that's going to come into the future. This is the way that human history is moving. There's always a harlot perched upon whatever empires at play that the beast is employing against God and against his people. On and on. Babylon, Persia, Greece, Rome, onward. The beast is said to be made up of these heads, these kings and kingdoms, and manifests itself in all these evil empires through history, but has also descended from all of it and is called an eighth king. In verse 11, he is one of his own heads. I take this to mean there will be the final battle depicted in this chapter and in the chapters to come wherein there will be a last ultimate manifestation of the beast's work through all time when the 10 kings assemble together with this literal beast or Antichrist and make war against the harlot. This is the war at Armageddon, or Armageddon spoken of in the sixth bowl, wherein God will cause a final civil war meltdown of evil as it tears itself to shreds, starting with the harlot, the great city center. It's sort of like reminds me of what happened in East Palestine. And I know what you're thinking. You're like, oh, finally, we're going to talk Middle East politics in the book of Revelation. No, East Palestine, Ohio. A couple weeks ago in East Palestine, Ohio, there was a train derailment, and there was some chemicals on board and a fire, and it started to burn, and it was getting uncontrollable. You know, so we're told in the news that they were following the temperature, and the temperature was just increasing, increasing, increasing. So with all these chemicals contained in this train... Uh, You know, it was going to become so unstable. There was going to be a chemical reaction, a series of dominoes. The thing was going to blow up and throw shrapnel for miles, right? And it's, it's sort of like the same concept as a nuclear meltdown. When a nuclear meltdown occurs, it's heat that happens in the core. It's unsustainable. And then it just gets chaotic, and there's an explosion, and then it's all, you know, crazy after that. So evil is the same way. It's chaotic, Evil is not kind to itself. I know it's not kind to the good, but it's not kind to itself. Its own heat will spiral out of control. It's unstable by nature, and it will eventually be allowed to cannibalize itself. And this is ultimately all guided by God's direction and word. So says chapter 17, verse 17. Now, chapter 18 depicts that the very implosion of evil against Babylon, the harlot, as an angel arrives and celebrates the fallen and hellish nature of the city after it is laid to waste. So the call to God's faithful is to be separated from the city, to be separated from the harlot, to be spiritually removed from association, because we do not want to be in the blast radius of God's wrath toward it a wrath that's going to be equal and comparable to the comfort and luxuries it had showered upon itself. Again, this is like the evacuation order given in East Palestine when they said this could explode and send shrapnel for miles. We need to get the people out of the area. So we, as God's people, God's faithful, we are called to separate ourselves from the spiritual realities of Babylon and it's sins that are piled all the way up to heaven because God's wrath and judgment is about to come toward all of it. And starting in verse 9 of chapter 18 into 19, we have the various reactions to that wrath being exercised against the city, both reactions that are of mourning and sadness and of celebration. And one's response to the fall of the city is dictated by their relationship to it. It's sort of like uh, on Super Bowl Sunday. You got two teams. And, you know, your response at the end of the Super Bowl game is dictated by your relationship to the teams. If your team won, you're celebrating. If your team lost, you're mourning, right? You're crying. Or there's a third option, you're just eating chips. I get that. But in this picture, there is no third option. You're either part of this great system or you're aligned with the kingdom of God. There in chapter 18, verse 9, it says the kings and merchants associated with Babylon, these are the powerful, this is the 1% of the political and economic system, they're going to come together in grief because their prosperity was tied to the evil and the idolatry of the city. And that's true today. The political and economic and religious dimensions of society are fused together just like you see here in Revelation chapter 18. They're all together. You know, there's a a spiritual dimension to it, the religious dimension. There's an economic dimension to it. There's a political dimension to it. And they all seem to go hand in hand as the merchants and kings and everybody come together to grieve the loss of this city. When when one of those things falls, it's all going to fall together. To illustrate the way that these forces are all tied together even today Let me take, for example, in the news this past week, what happened with Walgreens. Walgreens said that they will not sell the abortion pill in 20 states in our country. You know, they're going to have it where it's just, you can buy it right off the shelf. You don't need to go to a doctor or anything. It's just accessible. And they said, we're not going to sell it in 20 states here in America. And you go, oh, it's very righteous of Walgreens. It has nothing to do with righteousness. It has nothing to do with convictions. It has to do with 20 conservative states said, we will sue you, Walgreens, and take you to court if you sell this pill. So Walgreens said, well, you know, the money we make off the pill versus the money and the trouble of going to court, we just won't sell it in the places where it may or may not be illegal in the future. Well, California, the great crusader, California said, okay, that's our business, what you're doing, Walgreens. And if you decide that you're not going to sell this pill in those 20 states we will remove a multi-million dollar contract from you. So you'll lose money from us unless you sell those pills in those states. You understand these realities are all fused together. Political forces, belief systems and values, and money, the economics, they are always fused together. There's no, there's no soul in any of this. There's no convictions in these companies. Disney Think about Disney. Disney had a very progressive CEO, a very progressive agenda. Uh, They were, uh, you know, responded to by places like Florida. Florida revoked the special status of Disney World. It was classified as its own city and had certain protections and such. Well, they revoked that because of the progressive agenda of Disney. So the board said, well, get rid of the progressive CEO. This is trouble for us. Bring back the old CEO who's going to be more of a middler in society. It's not because Disney's righteous. It's not because anything in their value system has changed whatsoever. It has to do with money and politics and the interrelationship with the belief system. You know, the capitalism in itself, it's a system that has no soul. It follows the money and so worships and cooperates with whichever beast and system is at the helm of society. So here, those who align together in this system in Babylon, those kings, politicians, merchants, and CEOs who conspire together to get a little more for themselves in the midst of all this mess, they mourn the loss to their bottom line. They cry over created things. In verse 12 and 13, when this city comes to its demise, they're crying about the cargoes of gold, the silver. The precious stones and pearls, the fine linen, oh, the purple, the silk and scarlet cloth, every sort of special wood, the articles of every kind made of ivory, wood, bronze, iron, and marble, the cargoes of cinnamon and spice, of incense, myrrh, and frankincense, of wine and olive oil, of fine flour and wheat, cattle and sheep, horses and carriages, and human beings sold as slaves. That's what they're crying over. You know, it's like today, oh no, the luxury cars, the prime real estate, the interior design and architecture, the fine jewelry and fine wine and fine dining, and the stocks and the money and the tech factories and the cheap labor, all of it burned, lost in just an hour, vanishing in an hour. It reminds me of a story in the news this week. The Silicon Valley Bank Collapse. I saw this happen this week. Is this a gift to my sermon or what? (laughs) This text and this happens? The second largest bank failing in American history. The week I'm preaching on this, it failed in 48 hours. It just vanished, right? So God has determined that the wealth of the world system will evaporate in an hour and the powerful will mourn. Just like the powerful are on every news program this weekend trying to cool everyone down for Monday so that it doesn't spread across the whole economy. because they're scared because this is what they care about. So it goes. If you want to discover what you value most, pay attention to what you grieve. Pay attention to what you grieve, what you're sad about. Because that, you know, you can reverse engineer that and find, wow, that's the thing I must really value. You know, you find that in the world. This is when it all came crashing down. What did they really care about in the end? A bunch of created things, a bunch of stuff that gets burned up in an hour. Oh, what a waste. God can't do whatever He wants. You know what the heavenly city's going to look like, you know, but oh, you know, that's where the value was attached. And you can find that in what you grieve, you can also find what you value and what you celebrate. And verse 20 calls for celebration from the heavens and from the prophets, those who spoke faithfully the truth of God and from God's people. Because justice has finally been done for all that had been done against God's people through history. You know, God's people, they wouldn't succumb to the pressures of the beast. They're not going to worship a man. They're not going to worship a nation. They're not going to sell their soul for money or their brother or sister for money. You know, they're not going to celebrate the things that the world celebrates. They're going to speak up about evil and oppression and theft and all the other filth and immorality that exists in the world. And for that, they were being pressured to be silent. But they will be silenced no longer. It is the evil center of this world that will go quiet. And John sees an angel take a millstone and hurl it into the the sea. This is the oppressive system of idolatry of Babylon all through the ages being hurled into the deep. There's no more concerts there. There's no more luxuries, no more city lights, no more celebrations. You know, the city's merchants were the most important people in the world. And through their witchcraft and marketing, they used their influence to lead the whole world astray. But the fuel they used to keep the monster going was the blood of God's people. And as verse 24 says, all those slaughtered on the earth. Just like the Roman Empire, just like every earthly empire, the promise of uniting the world in perfect peace and luxury and comfort and wealth through the weapons of conquest and war, oppression and violence. Given that the evil of that empire is done away with forever and ever, a multitude of heavenly beings begin to give Joyful praise, glory, power, salvation comes from God alone in chapter 19. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures, they bow down. Those are those who serve God in His throne room. And a voice calls for all to praise God who fear Him. All His servants, both great and small. Then it's a call for rejoicing at the wedding ceremony, right? That's about to begin. The harlot has been thrown down and now the bride of Christ The church is about to be united with Christ, the bridegroom, and the the bride is adorned and ready, not with the gold and not with the luxuries and not with the excesses of the harlot, but clothed, in verse 8, as it says, with righteous deeds. And the angel tells John to write this. It's not like he's not going to write everything down. He's written everything down. But write this, underline this, bold this. This. Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. These are the true words of God. And when John hears that statement, these are the true words of God, he falls down in an act of worship before this angel, but he was reminded quickly, don't worship the messenger. Don't worship the prophecy. Don't worship the one who's teaching the book of Revelation. I don't care who they are. Worship God. Revelation has made it clear. There's only one to worship in heaven and on earth. That is the victorious and sovereign creator of all. What a powerful set of chapters here. And as we step back and as I consider the implications for us as I have every week through this study, there's some things I want to leave you with. I want to reiterate. I want to say again, number one, Revelation is relevant. I want to convey and reiterate that in my reading of Revelation all through the book, including these chapters, everything we've been studying, I say again, Revelation is relevant for us today. I think there's a real danger. The danger in seeing all of this as future means you and I aren't being informed as a Christian for today. You and I aren't perceiving the activities of Satan, the beast, and the harlot in our world system in America now. We're saying, oh, that's something for the future. Well, then you're not going to be looking for the methods, the methodology, the fact that there's a spiritual battle taking place. Yes, there will be a final manifestation of the Antichrist, but the gospel tells us The New Testament tells us there are many antichrists that have already gone out into the world. They're already at work. Yes, there will be, as suggested here in Revelation 18, a final literal manifestation of the beast. But Daniel saw all idolatrous empires as a beast. In his vision, he's going through it. It is Babylon. It is Persia. It is Greece. It is Rome. So you think, what happened here? Oh, the beast is active all throughout these ages. And then Rome ends... And he stopped? The beast stopped being active in the world during the Middle Ages? Do you know the Middle Ages? You know, are you aware of even today? You're telling me there's this pause of activity where, where Satan is no longer, you know, warring against us in the same way. And there's no longer a manifestation of the Babylon of old. And you're saying there's no earthly city centers of harlotry and prostitution that export this idolatry around the world, I can think of a few in California where we live. You know, in the vision of the woman and the child and the dragon, which is earlier in the book of Revelation, the dragon goes to make war with the offspring of the woman right after the child ascends to heaven, after he's taken up. There's no pause, there's no break. The dragon immediately goes to make war with the offspring of the woman and immediately employs the activities of the beast. When Jesus is enthroned, first thing he does after chapter five is he opens the seals right away. Use discernment, don't be unaware. We're in the spiritual battle. We're in the spiritual battle. This isn't playtime before some spiritual battle happens in the future and we're all good right now and it's real calm. Everything's going like it should we're in it. They were in the spiritual battle in the first century. I think there's a real danger in believing otherwise when you see this as future and you let your guard down. And it's dangerous because, number two, an impression I'm left with reading this passage, it's dangerous to think it's all future because the idolatrous world system today is deceptively seductive. You know, its first seduction is to make you think, oh, you're not a victim to it today, all this stuff, that's future. I mean, that's, that, to me, that's a little bit deceptive because then you're not even aware of, the, you know, the, the forces that are at play here against God's people. But, but all this entire idolatrous world, system it wants to blend in. It wants to be accepted. It wants to be just, you know, part of your life and, and not really stand out. I mean, break down the players in the book of Revelation and how they are deceptively seductive. The harlot is a counterfeit vision of the bride of Christ. It's beautiful. It's enticing. John wondered at it. It was filled with luxuries, pleasures, important people. It's a community. Don't we want to be involved in a community? It's an alternate community, the alternate place of belonging in the world apart from the kingdom of God, the alternate system that demands worship and valuation in the world. And the beast is a counterfeit image of Christ, too. You may have wondered, what's this business about? The world marveling at the beast as it emerges from the abyss. You know, that's what it says in chapter 13. It's, it's saying it again here. Uh, you know, the, the beast when it emerges in chapter 13. It has, a, it has a mortal wound on one of its heads, and yet it still lives. And so the world marvels at it. The fact it's not dead, it's back. You know, it's coming back. It's this, it's this counterfeit version of a resurrection, Just like Jesus has a resurrection, so this beast is coming up out of the abyss. But the difference is it's only coming out so that it can return back to the abyss where Jesus is raised up into heavenly glory. God is, was, and will be forever. The beast when he's referred to is not, and yet will be, only to be judged. And then there's the false prophet, the second beast out of the land, who was said to have two horns, mimicking the image of the Lamb the two horns of the Lamb of Jesus. You know, just as so-called Balaam was deceiving the church of Pergamum in the letters to the churches, and Jezebel was there in Thyatira, so there are these false teachers working within the community of God, disguising themselves as if they're representatives of Jesus, saying that they are angels of light, but really what they're promoting is being complicit with the idolatrous world system of today. There are all these parodies and counterfeits in the spiritual of the battle of of this world that appear at first glance to be enticing. There is a love in the world that is a parody of the love of the gospel. It's enticing, it's beautiful, but when you get down to the core of it, it's really just the love of self. There's a grace that's counterfeit, and it's a parody of the grace of the gospel in the world. It's a grace that demands no repentance or change from anybody at all, right? Right? There's a charity in the world that really doesn't have to give a whole lot, right? There's a righteousness in the world by which, you know, you say, these are the people we admire, and they are often the people that are on the most extreme of their sexual immorality. We say, that's righteous, that's good, that's the most extreme vision we have of that, let's prop that up, let's honor that. It's the greediest people. The people who can make the most in the world system, we prop them up, we say, oh, look at these special people. You know, that's righteous, that's good. It's a parody of the righteousness of the kingdom of God. There's a parody of God. The God of the world has no voice, has no personality, has no demands on you, has no book, has no authority. It's a counterfeit, it's false. All these elements are dressed up, attractive, adorned in city lights and celebrations with important people and the false promise of peace. And yet on closer inspection, you see the cup that it holds is filled only with abominations. Abominations. So having said that, acknowledge its deceptive character, the idolatrous system of this world, and how it seeks to deceive even us with these counterfeit portrayals of what we're offered in God. I invite you, this is an imperative, question yourself about what you love in the world. What do you love in your life? What do you love in the world? What do you love about America and being American? What do you grieve over and what do you celebrate? Is it the things that we're told will pass and will be buried in the depths? I mean, do you love the security you feel in America built on a weapons stockpile? Do you love our superior wealth, the freedom to pursue happiness on your own terms through luxury and indulgence, fine food and easy living? Do you love feeling like in Orange County you're part of the important and powerful people? It's the harlot that is adorned in such dress. Remember, all earthly kingdoms, including the one that we're a part of, are going to be nothing but a parody and counterfeit compared to the kingdom of God. The church of Laodicea was warned in chapter 3, verse 17. The church, the Christians, you say, I am rich, I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing, but you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you, Jesus says, to buy from me gold refined in the fire so you can become rich and white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so you can see. That church of Laodicea, they got a little too comfortable while in this world of Exile. They settled in to the kingdom of Babylon, and they dressed themselves like the harlot. God says, come out from the city. Be separated so you don't share in the sins and so you don't share in the plagues and destruction that is about to befall it. So Jesus told Laodicea, trade your worldly wealth for true wealth. All that fine clothing and excess and luxury Get rid of it because you're actually spiritually naked. Take the white clothes that I want to give you and clothe yourself in the confession of me as Lord and in a life that reflects my goodness. The adornment of the bride, what we are to clothe ourselves with and what we are to pursue and desire are those righteous acts that follow in line with Jesus. They're the righteous deeds which the book of Revelation is constantly reminding us Jesus sees done or undone in his church. So I ask you, do you love the things that are perishing and deserving of wrath, or do you love the things that are eternal and will receive a reward? It's an incisive question, but it's an important one as we consider the testimony of this book. Let's pause and reflect on that question in a posture prayer. Would you pray with me? And Heavenly Father, I am asking that you would give insight to my brothers and sisters. Are we attached to and do we love and do we grieve and do we celebrate the things that are perishing and deserving of wrath? Or are we pursuing and loving the things that will persevere on into eternity, those things that receive a reward? What are we grieving? What are we celebrating? Where are our attachments? Heavenly Father, I thank you for the relevance of this book. For the truth that you gave to the early church that you've given to the church through the ages that you give to us today, that we might be aware of the true spiritual battle that is taking place around us. The deceptiveness of the idolatrous world system that sets itself up against you that calls out for our loyalty that wants to preach to us a different gospel, a different good news that really isn't going to end in prosperity. It's going to end in destruction. Lord, give us the wisdom and discernment. It wasn't wisdom you were trying to give believers to know things that would happen in the future that they wouldn't have any involvement in. That's not wisdom. Wisdom is applied knowledge. You're equipping us for life with this. You're helping us find our place in the midst of this battle. You're calling us out from the city of destruction, from the system of destruction. You're telling us to be separate. You've called us to be the bride, to be pure, to be adorned in righteousness, not in the luxuries and excesses and self-indulgence of this world. We're called to honor you and you alone and no other. Lord, let us be such. Here we are. We're at a center in the world. We're, at, we're in the heart in Southern California of some of this system at play even now. And those seductions are just as tempting for any one of us, just as it was for John. You, you had your apostle John who walked with you. He saw these promises. He lived his life. He was still enticed. And Lord, we can be enticed. We can be weak. And yet, Lord, you're calling us out. You're calling us to be separate. You're calling us to build our life on our confession of your son Jesus and on his example Lord let that be what makes us beautiful in Orange County let that be what sets us apart as your people a life that reflects Jesus your son